Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're talking about Upal Basu. Upal has worked in the mobile and software technology industry for over 20 years and is currently the technology investor and global software entrepreneur for NGP Capital. In this episode, we're going to dive into what Upal has learned as an investor as well as an operator and then talk about NGP's view of the world of SaaS software and edge computing. Please enjoy my conversation with Upal Basu. Upal, welcome to Fast Frontiers. It's so good to have you on here. Happy to be here, Tim. Delighted to reconnect. So that our listeners uh, know how we connected, it was through our mutual friend and colleague, John Gardner, originally from Cincinnati and Miami University grad who's been with NGP and and that effort for quite a long time. And we stay in touch and he's always helpful to us here in the region. And we talk about deal flow and whatnot. And, and he was able to connect us, which I'm very grateful for. Indeed, indeed. And, uh, and your friend John is the founder of NGP Capital. And uh, I'll be happy to tell you more about our fund and my own background. That would be great. Let's start there. Just a few words on NGP Capital. Um, NGP Capital is a is an early growth stage fund founded in 2005 by John Gardner and, and one of my colleagues, Paul. We manage a little over a billion and a half of capital. Uh, the genesis of our organization is uh, the, the capital came from our limited partner, Nokia. And um, when our uh, fund was founded, the world was siloed into a pure financial VC-focused uh, set of funds and uh, highly captive balance sheet investors uh, in, in the technology world. And we felt there was a better way because one of the most important things is to attract the right sort of talent to make investments. And we felt that um, the financially focused, incentivized individuals tend to perform the best so we wanted to have a team which was financially focused, but yet we wanted to get the benefit of strategic insights. And we felt being aligned with a large corporation would give us proprietary insights on needs, demands, trends, which are not readily available to traditional VCs. So we felt a combination like that would make us a unique fund, which it did. Since then, many other uh, funds have emerged which have a similar approach, including Google Ventures, Sapphire Ventures, these are all independent funds, but backed by a single limited partner. But we'd like to think we were one of the first to get this off the ground in 2005. Since then, we have built a global uh, platform with offices here in Palo Alto, where I'm based out of, and which I run, but also offices in Switzerland, in, uh, in um, Helsinki, in Berlin, and also in uh, Shanghai. The other thing which makes us uh, somewhat unique is in, unlike uh, a franchisee type devolved office structure, we actually make decisions together. We look at deals together. We like to see patterns emerging from different parts of the world and seeing how we can take advantage of those trend lines from a global perspective. My own background is I'm very global myself. I, um, I was uh, born in England, brought up in India did my grad studies in the United States and, uh, and have lived in three separate continents for significant periods of my life and time. And so uh, very much uh, a kid who, who grew up during the 70s, 80s, and 90s through globalization. Mm. And um, so I look at world very holistically and, and uh, from a very international perspective. 
I, um, I have also done many things. I'm an engineer by training. I was a management consultant at McKinsey. I was an entrepreneur, founded a company, quite a significant one in device management, and then became an investor. So I've also tried many different things. I sort of enjoy the fact I can try and explore different ideas. Um, and and uh, of all, all the careers I've had, um, I, I would say working with entrepreneurs perhaps gives me the most satisfaction. I feel I have a, an indirect skin in the game in the future of our planet. And I'd like to see how I can make a difference. So uh, I'm very much an active investor and I like to work with entrepreneurs. Having been an entrepreneur myself, I like to think I may have, I may be more helpful than just a traditional investor. I guess they would be the best reference for that point. But, uh, but yeah, so on, on that basis, I've been doing this for 14 years and uh, love my job. Feel very privileged to be doing this for a living. Have to agree with you, a bias, but you know, being a former founder operator does seem to be is helpful. And uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs appreciate that. Uh, your background, you have a fantastic background. So I'm sure they love to tap into your wisdom. Actually, what would, what would be a couple things that you learned as an operator that you've brought to investing that you think are unique, given that you've had both perspectives? So I would say it the, the people judgment question, I would say it's really ultimately boils down to people. Every business, I, the, including the business I founded, and most of the companies I've backed, I've backed 20 companies directly, they've had to pivot at some point, pivot from an idea, market, product. And people who are extremely driven and focused, yet flexible and are humble enough to recognize when things are not going their way, tend to do best in as entrepreneurs. And I think what I, what I learned was that often board members and traditional VCs often, once they invest in a company, are actually become quite impatient for revenue growth and key metrics so that they can, because often these partners are reporting to other partners in the organization, they're trying to build their own franchise and reputation. Right. And they offer a shift from, they surprisingly become very quarterly focused. And, and what I learned is about good companies is good companies are often not built in quarters, often take a decade to really fully, fully bear fruit. And it's very important, especially in the first two, three years, to, to, to be very open-minded about that, that relationship you're building with the entrepreneur. It's um, both, both, both the entrepreneur instinct on what is the right opportunity and market uh, evolves over time, but the board members also need to evolve over time. And I would say when that balance is right, great things can happen. But when, once there's dysfunction on one, one side of that conversation, things, things can often not go very well. Yeah, that's uh, such a good point. Having that empathy is, is, uh, is huge. So what's the profile of the investments that the NGP looks for? Yeah, so we call ourselves early growth fund, which means um, um, not to put any alphabets, seed, seed A or B, but uh, in our investing strategy, but uh, more around what we call product market fit, which means we generally come in when the company has a, a few customers and the product has gone beyond beta stage to a GA product. What we are really looking for is some evidence that there's demand for the product. 
there's a demand, there's a market for it. The market doesn't have to be large yet. The market needs to be, could be very much a fledgling market, but some signals of consumption, which we can then take and, and, and build a much more international story around. So generally what that usually means is the company has raised one institutional round of capital before we come in. It could be a seed stage fund or it could be, an, um, could be a traditional Sandhill firm. When we come in, we like to lead these rounds. Obviously, last two, three years have been a little crazy when valuations reached us the stage where it became very hard for us to lead rounds. But generally, we have had a bias towards leading rounds. On average, most of our um, companies we back are valued below 100, but um, we are not, um, we don't have a red line on that. We have backed companies at significant multiples of that. But generally, what we're looking for, obviously, is a is a future over the next five years, which is going to be significantly bigger than where we're coming in. And do you have a minimum or average check size? On average, it's been around 10. Um, it's creeping up, so it's moving closer to 15. Um, but uh, we have also done $5 million checks when the round was oversubscribed and uh, we still wanted to be in the business. And how about industry sectors? So we are not industry sector focused as much as I would say thematic sector focused. So, I would, so industry as in not vertical industry focused, although there are some vertical industries we do find attractive. I would say the thematic themes we are uh, especially attracted to are, uh, we call it broadly the edge computing space, the cybersecurity space, and the, I would say, AI-driven transformation of the enterprise. Um, I would say those are three sort of broad buckets. The AI-driven transformation, uh, cybersecurity, and I would say edge compute are, are areas where we are spending um, significant time and energy. And some of this is also influenced by our LP's interest, uh, which is um, since Nokia is a world leader in 5G and networking, they are looking for business ecosystem and companies which are likely to benefit from a shift to 5G. And so we think some of these themes are well aligned with that. And if edge is part of the focus, to what degree will you do invest in companies that have hardware component? Uh, we have invested in companies with cameras and chips. So just to give you some example, we, we, we invested in a company which was uh, acquired by AMS called Heptagon, which was a uh, time of flight chip which is now built into pretty much every Apple device. We spotted that company very early in Switzerland. Uh, we are investors in a company called Retail Next, which has built um, uh, uh, multidimensional cameras which sit on top of retail stores and can monitor traffic and convert all that into data. We, we are actively looking at a number of industrial computer vision use cases companies which are trying to help automate and improve quality performance mm. inside the inside industrial environments. So um, we will look at hardware devices, but with a very um, use case focus. Uh, so we, we have historically not backed chips for chips sake, but more around a, a demand cycle. So more like a system, a system approach. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I know. Uh... For some entrepreneurs that might be listening, they have a hardware component. It's hard, sometimes hard for them to find hardware investors, right? Everybody wants to do, everybody wants, everybody wants SaaS. And um, yes, having said that, we generally like companies which have software and hardware together. I'll give you one very simple example: is a company called Whistle, which was a dog collar 
a dog tracking collar, which yeah. Mars bought and has now scaled it up massively. This was a company which, which actually had a GPS chip built into it. But what made it special was the, the software which allowed owners to monitor track the behavior of their, uh, of their pets. And the, we, we often see the, 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 the commoditization of the chip layer happens much faster, but companies which can build that software stack on top tend to have more sustainability as businesses. So how do you define, can you just kind of give us some definition about what you mean by edge computing and what are some of the trends in that space? I, I would say we, we have a system, of, uh, a system definition of edge. So we, we think of edge cloud as a system consists of three things, which is a vertical solution, which sits at the edge of the network, a central cloud processing, which does the, a lot of the processing and horizontal enabling technologies, which provide much of the platform capabilities to deliver the value. Now, the in the first generation of edge computing, companies were trying to provide all of these bespoke as IoT platforms. Uh, Predix is an example of a GE-backed company. And these were extremely expensive technologies and required mastery of everything from hardware to middleware to cloud computing to edge. What we see is, uh, is a separation and specialization. As, as cloud computing has become more sophisticated and API-based companies have emerged, you can now build a hardware ed- end device, which is extremely plug and play. And to give you some examples, companies like Varkara for building automation or, or Samsara, which went public. These are great examples of companies which actually initially started trying to build the whole thing themselves, but then decided to focus on building the end device and leveraging a lot of public resources and web scale technologies on the back end. Uh, we have recently backed a company called SVT Robotics, which does something similar. It, um, it, it provides an operating system for robots, runs on top of different and dispatch robotic systems, but does not, um, but again, pulls in resources and capabilities of third-party technologies and software. So we actually see Edge, edge becoming and increasingly an extension of web scalers and cloud companies as they move and more closer to the edge and provide a lot of the developer tools and enabling technologies. Entrepreneurs can then piggyback on all that capability and build the last mile. And, and we believe that's where most of the value will be captured. Um, we also think the, the traditional uh, cloud computing and cloud centric uh, companies are not particularly good at understanding the needs of the end user whether it's a vertical industry plan logistics or whether it's a healthcare company. And that's where um, the, the, the entrepreneur can be highly innovative and build solutions. But, uh, but it's very important that whatever they build is uh, abstracts a lot of deployment system integration complexity away from the procurement people and the buyer and the user. Because one of the, one of the things we've learned about edge computing, which we believe is a continuum of the IoT conversation, is that the moment you put system integration and customization into the mix, you slow, you slow things down and you, you, you move into what's called pilot purgatory. It's a mm-hmm. you, you yep. lifetime of trials, but you don't get anywhere. That's why when entrepreneurs think of Edge, we say build a complete solution, leverage third-party solutions, but abstract all that away from the end user. What about on the side of AI, the AI transformation? What are some of the things you're seeing there, some of the themes that you're focused on? 
Yeah, so the great topic. Um, I know if folks have been following some of the amazing innovations in foundational AI, GPT-3, uh, DALI, the, the, the amount of uh, parameters, some of these, um, how intelligent um, and not yet sentient AI has become. Again, what we are seeing is the best companies are able to take advantage of all the great work the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsoft and OpenAIs have done and build a layer of insight and intelligence, which only they can own. And I'll give you an example. There's a company called Observe, Observe AI, which is a company which is in the contact center automation space. What they do is they record every conversation between the, the caller and the agent, and they help the agent not only on quality training purposes, but also respond in real time to calls, um, agitated callers usually. People usually only call when there's some some tension in that conversation, understanding the, the, the tension, the emotion of the caller and responding appropriately all in real time. Again, leveraging a lot of amazing work which has happened in these foundational AI technologies. Similarly, I have a, I'm on the board of a company called Security Scorecard, which is trying to predict how likely a company is gonna get hacked in the next 12 months by mm -hmm. not looking at internal signals, but external signals on what a hacker might see how a hacker might uh, categorize that company across 20 dimensions, and then looking for patterns to see in the past, have other companies been breached with similar vulnerabilities, and then telling the company, you have these 10 areas where you need to do better. And, and again, real time, constantly getting updated for patterns. So all these predictive patterns, again, build, again building on a lot of the work which has been done in many of these foundational AI technologies. So we, we love the great work which is being done by these massive web scalers, but we think um, entrepreneurs have this unique insight and advantage to, to really understand the end user and take advantage of many of these models. It also sounds like from those examples, AI is using to make people better. It's improving human performance. It's not replacing it. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Yeah. So we've always had this view for a very long time that AI is, is, a, is an augmenter of human capabilities and takes the mundane away and allows us to process or uh, use our brains in a more creative fashion. I, I recently heard something about the word um, autopilot and co-pilot, where autopilot technologies try to automate all the mundane work away and co-pilot tries to make the person smarter. Uh, the, some of the most un, un clerical work, which, which the DMV type work can be automated by machines and I think those, those people could be released to work on more higher value added tasks. We do believe that, and, and uh, it's a longer conversation, all, all industrial revolutions from agriculture onward have actually created net new more jobs. And so as people move away from spreadsheet work and data entry work to, to more AI driven work, I do believe we'll create more jobs. The loss of, people always fear the existential loss of jobs from an existing business. But when you look at what Excel did to handwritten financial models, it created 10x more opportunities for spreadsheet workers. Mm. We, we think these spreadsheet workers are probably going to move to the next level uh, through AI and we'll create more jobs. That's good. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's uh, a great point. Uh, I love the uh, autopilot versus copilot. So you're letting people do higher level work, not just automating tasks, which often can kind of dumb dumb folks down, right? Because they don't know what's going on. Exactly. Co-pilot co makes you better and maybe helps 
drive more insight and learning. So switching gears a little bit in terms of Fast Frontiers, what trends are you seeing in terms of innovation and investing that are happening outside of Silicon Valley? Yeah, great question. So we are by design, designed outside Silicon Valley in the sense that when we started our fund in 2005, we opened an office in China and India and Europe simultaneously. So we never, ever invested more than 25% of our capital in Silicon Valley. So it's very interesting that now the rest of the world has realized there's innovation available everywhere around the world. And certainly AWS and other cloud computing companies has made it much easier to start a company anywhere in the world. When I was an entrepreneur, I had to spend a million dollars to just get a rack and a T1 line, which uh, most people may not know what a T1 line <laughs> is, but a dedicated pipe from AT&T cost us $40,000 a month, $40,000 in 2000. Only, it's only 20 years back. Um, I had to spend 40,000 a month just on, an, uh, on, on a telecom line from AT&T. So you can see why there was such a barrier to scaling internationally and how those barriers have been mitigated through internet and cloud computing. So we absolutely believe in that mission and, and opportunity. Talent is global. Elon Musk came from South mm -hmm. Africa. So, so we actually see it that way. Now, one, the other trend we are seeing is, is people are adapting and experimenting much more globally. So they're not taking Silicon Valley models. They're taking their own approaches. So Silicon Valley, I think there's a saying, has become more of a mindset than a location. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we see Silicon Valley mindset probably on steroids in places like Shanghai and Bangalore, where people are constantly experimenting with their local opportunities. So education is very highly hyper-local in many societies. Healthcare is hyper-local in many societies. And the way you solve those problems is taking a, a local approach, not a necessarily a Silicon Valley approach. So some of the trends we see is, again, um, we see AI starting to percolate everywhere around the world, people taking advantage of these opportunities. Uh, we also see in the next five to 10 years, a big shift in this sort of what we call the convergence play, this, this separation of physical world and digital world. And I know people have been talking about the consumer metaverse, but I think the, the thing to really focus on is really the industrial and the business metaverse. How can healthcare outcomes get improved? Industrial outcomes be improved? If we can sensorize our bodies, we could have a real-time relationship with our doctors, which is actually a convergence of my body and a, and a digital uh, replica of my body, which my doctor can see. So we actually think that kind of a twinning more in the business world is actually going to create some significant value. And we are again seeing a lot of entrepreneurship mm. happening in that uh, direction globally. Yeah, we've seen you know a lot happening or continuing to happen in this digital twin environment in business for training, et cetera. And a yeah. lot of that seems to be a lot of you know consulting, systems integration, that sort of thing. So I'm curious to see if you've seen any or hear if you've seen any other kind of products or infrastructure that might be required for that. We're starting to see this in uh, education, uh, in the education university setting, because they were forced to adopt to a world of le uh, hybrid learning. Again, a lot of it is custom built right now, but uh, we do believe um, many of those features will get productized over time. And, and again, so that there's a big entrepreneurial opportunity if you can productize some of the system integration type work, there could be, there could be some real value creation opportunity. 
Great. So today we're recording this. I'm not sure when this is going to be published, but we're recording this uh, near the end of June. Let's just spend a couple minutes talking about the current market conditions. Uh, You've seen these kind of cycles before. There are a lot of similarities, but there are some differences as well. But what's the best advice you have for both entrepreneurs and investors, particularly early stage companies? Let's say, you know, up, up through up through series B uh, on how to navigate the next, you know, the next year. Yes. So I I have one piece of advice for existing entrepreneurs and probably a different one for new entrepreneurs. So, so for existing entrepreneurs, if you are a seed stage entrepreneur, I think stretching your capital for three years doesn't actually make a lot of sense because you, you, you are going to be valued on, on your, on your next milestone. So if you're a seed entrepreneur with starting to build your first prototype, you should continue on that journey uh, and not not slow down that journey because the 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 the, the, the milestone on which you'll be judged in the next round is 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 what you have delivered. So and and time is not a friend when you don't deliver that. But if you are a later stage invest uh, investee and entrepreneur. I, I would absolutely look at the sales and marketing burn rate and try to ask the question, can I stretch my capital for another two to three years? Because the market over certainly overvalued the series B and C stages over the last few years. Entrepreneurs need to grow into those valuations in two to three years. The good news is that it all ends, always ends positively. It just takes longer than you expect. So the world is constantly innovating. So I'm optimistic about the future i'm just not very good at predicting timing of when the when the capital markets start releasing capital again it could be 12 months it could be 3 or 4 years so i i just tell all entrepreneurs in our portfolio make your cash last for 2 to 3 years but if you're a seed investor get hit those milestones because you you cannot make the the the, the minimum capital you raise needs to deliver some mm-hmm. value and there is a lot of dry gunpowder there for good companies still for a new entrepreneur, I would just say, um, uh, seed at the seed stage, the, the the in my opinion at least, the 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 valuations have not changed that much, and and there's a lot of wealthy, high net worth individuals and seed funds which are looking for opportunities. If anything, more demand is flowing back towards the early stage of the cycle, which is really where the true true venture model really lies. In my opinion, if I'm a if you're a great entrepreneur and if you are dissatisfied with your current job, I I certainly think this is a great time to start a company. The other cycle we have seen since at least the cycles I've experienced in 1992 is the best companies with the best return profiles were started between 2002 and 2007, and then 2010 to 13. The the vin- those vintages have some of the best return profiles both for the entrepreneur as well as for investors. The reason being that all the follow-on rounds tend to be up rounds when you start a company at this stage. So keep in mind that it's not, if you are starting at the bottom of the cycle, the, the next seven years are actually more likely to be on your side than against you. So I, I so the, my pattern recognition is great time to start a company. Capital is still plentiful, certainly at the seed and CD stage. If I'm a BNC entrepreneur, I have to be much more careful. Absolutely. And the question I keep getting, and I'm going to ask you, but I think I know the answer. Has this environment changed your investing pace in any way? 
So, um, interesting point. Uh, so, fortunately for us, we closed our fifth fund, which is a $400 million fund in January this year. So, we, we start with a lot of dry gunpowder. So, we are actually being actually quite opportunistic. Uh, we are finding that many of the deals which were done in 2021 at overvalued prices, those entrepreneurs are coming back with, at this time in June, for almost all of them are willing to do flat rounds on 2020, 21 prices. We expect those flat rounds are more likely to become repriced in the next six to nine months as, as more and more companies, uh, 1,500 unicorns right now, we understand, and probably 10x more Cs, A and B stage companies need to raise follow-on financing in the next 12 to 18 months. So the market is in our favor, but we are being selective. You know, we don't look at only valuation as our metric. We look at the quality of the entrepreneur and the market opportunity. And we are finding that this is actually a great time if you have capital to start conversations with the best entrepreneurs. We may not invest right now. We may invest nine months from now. But um, for a while, it, the relationship between investors and entrepreneurs had become very transactional. Last two, three uh, years, literally, um, the, the relationship just became a term sheet and valuation conversation. What we like about this time is that entrepreneurs and VCs are actually having real conversations about value creation together, and it's not about just pricing. And I think that's a healthier state to be in. And, and so we, we feel fortunate we have the capital, but we want to work with the best entrepreneurs now and spend time getting to know them. That's terrific. Well, I hope all our listeners, the entrepreneurs out there heard that message, get in contact with you and, and uh, see if there's a possibility to collaborate. Upal, thank you so much for your time and sharing your perspective with us. Well, thank you, Tim. Again, a pleasure and, and love the work you're doing in the middle of the country, bringing uh, innovation and capital to, to the best people up there. So, You got it. Thanks. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Tim Kite, founder and CEO of Focus3, a firm that teaches elite training systems to develop leaders, strengthen culture, and empower people. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis, audio engineering by Astronomic Audio, and our podcast platform is Casted.